the death penalty or capital punishment has been abolished in Australia for many years now. In this two-part episode, I look back at two cases, Jean Lee and Ronald Ryan, who were the last female and last male to be executed in Australia, and the controversy over their convictions that still remains today. In part two, I look at Ronald Ryan, the last person to be legally executed in Australia. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, the next person to be executed in Victoria would be the last man to hang, Ronald Joseph Ryan. Ryan was born in Carlton, Melbourne on the 21st of February 1925. Ryan had a reasonably uneventful childhood until the age of 11 where he was busted stealing a watch from the next door neighbour. This brought the family to the attention of the state welfare authorities. Ryan ended up being sent to Rupertswood, the Salesian Order's School for Orphaned, Wayward and Neglected Boys in Sunbury. Probably a good place for a wayward boy to learn the trade of waywardness. Anyway, soon his sisters would be sent away as well. It looks like the parents were neglecting the children because they were alcoholics. In September 1939, Ryan ran away from Rupertswood and with his half-brother George Thompson, they got work in and around Ranald, New South Wales, doing odd jobs such as sleeper cutting and roo shooting. Ryan would send any extra money he had to his mum, who was in turn looking after his sick Alco father. So Ryan at this stage seems to be doing the right thing, taking care of his parents and working hard. In 1945, Ryan rented a house in Ranald where his mother and sisters lived together. His father stayed in Melbourne and died a year later from miner's lung. At age 22, Ryan started to go to Melbourne on the weekends and amazingly he hooked up with the mayor of Hawthorne's daughter, Dorothy Janet George. So Ronald Ryan was really punching above his weight catching the eye of Dorothy and I would have been, loved to have been a fly on the wall of the mayor's house. Ryan was Catholic and so in order to marry Dorothy he converted to Church of England which is now known as the Anglican Church. So Ronald and Dorothy Ryan would end up having three daughters Janice, Wendy and Rhonda. He started working for his father-in-law as an apprentice mechanic, but after a few months he found there was more money cutting timber in the bush and when it was too wet, too wet to cut timber, he was able to get work painting for the State Electricity Commission. Now, things started to go astray in 1953 when while he was away for the weekend, his rented house burns down. Police are able to find the guy that committed the arson attack and under questioning, he admitted that Ryan put him up to it to claim insurance money. Ryan was charged, but then acquitted. 
1956, Ryan was passing bad checks in Dandenong, which he got off with a good behaviour bond once busted. Soon, it would be bad checks in Warnable, where his partner in crime was busted with the goods purchased with the bad checks. His partner dobs Ryan in straight away, but again, Ryan got away with a good behaviour bond as the arresting detective gave him a good character reference in court. So, Ryan picks his accomplices well. Both time they were caught, they gave him up straight away. So, by 1960, and with being let off relatively lightly from previous convictions, Ryan starts to escalate his break-enter-and-steal career. I don't know why this happened, but I reckon it was pressure to provide for his family and not just provide hand-to-mouth payday-to-payday, but to actually get ahead and be able to provide more for his family. I mean, he was married to the mayor's daughter, and that probably stressed him out trying to raise his social standing in the community. So, as I said, we're up to 1960, and Ryan is committing more robberies. Eventually, he's caught, but he and his mates escape custody and go on the run. After a few days, they're caught, and on the 17th of June 1960, Ryan is sentenced to eight and a half years imprisonment after pleading guilty to eight charges of breaking and stealing and one of escaping from legal custody. While in prison, Ryan studies hard and was able to complete his leaving certificate, which is the same as year 10 or fourth form. He was studying for matriculation, which is the same as year 12 or sixth form, when he was released on parole in 1963 and regarded as a model prisoner. Well, there you go. But a shame he didn't get the next level certificate. Back then, not so many people had that level of education. Anyway, he got a job as clerk for a few months, but then he left his job unannounced. He decided to rob butcher shops at night by blowing the safes. I mean, what the fucking fuck fuck? This guy has a nice wife and family, a job, education, and he goes back to a life of crime. He only served three years of his eight-year sentence, so he'd been given a huge chance to change his life. His wife had stuck by him all this time, Imagine the pressure she was getting from her families and friends to dump him. I don't know. Anyway, his wife would say that he was always trying to provide but had a bad gambling habit and this is what drew him into a life of crime. Sad to say that she said that she didn't want a high life. She just wanted a happy family. Well, it doesn't take too long before the cops are on to Ryan and his gang for blowing up safes in butcher shops. On the 4th of January 1964, after a tip-off, Ryan and his two mates are busted blowing another safe in a butcher shop. He's charged with break, enter and theft two days later. He gets bail four weeks later and flees north to New South Wales where he goes on a crime spree. 
he returns to visit his family on the 14th of July and police raid his house early in the next morning and recapture him. He eventually admits to nine robberies while on the run in New South Wales. Do these people really think they aren't going to get caught? As I said before, this guy has a good foundation to build his life on but just wants to go around stealing shit. Let's go on. In November of 1964, Ryan is sentenced to eight years prison for break, enter and steal offences and taken to Pentridge Prison in Melbourne. Here he meets Peter John Walker, who was described by one official as someone who, if he had a mirror, would look into it and, and admire himself all day. Uh, this made me laugh, as you can imagine. This Walker guy that not only thinks he's such a handsome ladies' man, but the scumbag is going to be out of the dating game for the next 12 years for bank robberies, unless you count the prison dating scene, of course. Now, I'll just go off on a tangent for a sec about this Walker guy. Three years ago, in 2014, he was arrested at Perth Airport with a one-way ticket to London. He had $100,000 on him and was trying to travel under the passport of a dead guy. Walker was charged with 97 drug trafficking, deception and firearm offences and ultimately he would plead guilty to 14 of those charges. The judge said it was Walker's ingrained code of never saying no to a mate that had led to a lifetime of trouble. Now, this guy's in his 70s. You would have thought he'd know better by now. I mean, fronting up to a major Australian international airport with a dodgy passport in the name of a dead guy? I mean, what the fuck's he thinking? And to top it all off, buying a one-way ticket is always going to raise a red flag at customs. Just letting you know, okay? So it looks like although Walker loves himself... He is the sort of guy that won't let a mate down. So he's not all that bad. But this story's not about him. So let me get back to the main topic. So we've got Ryan and Walker. They meet in Pentridge B Division. Pentridge is an old jail holding 1,500 of Victoria's worst criminals in cramped 3 metre by 1.9 metre or 10 feet by 6 feet cells. At this stage, Ryan gets word that his wife has finally had enough and wants a divorce. Ryan is deeply affected by the news and starts to discuss a plan of escape with Walker, who, as I said before, is in the joint for 12 years. When Ryan approached the 23-year-old Walker and asked if he was interested in escaping, Walker replied, why not? Walker would later say that 12 years was a long time for a 23-year-old. That's basically half his whole life experience. So, yeah. Ryan's ultimate plan is to escape, grab his family and flee to Brazil, as, as Brazil did not have an extradition treaty with Australia. I don't know how he was going to do this. Probably go there himself and then bring the family over later. Qantas did have flights to the USA in their new Boeing 707 and he could have then flown onwards to Brazil. This would have been expensive for a family of five at that time. 
so the other way would be going by boat. Either way, it was a grand plan to try and pull off if he could escape. Okay, so Ryan and Walker are making plans to escape the prison and decide the best way is over the wall. As luck would have it, the prison guard's Christmas party was coming up and that meant there would be skeleton staff manning the guard towers along the walls and this would be their best chance. At around 2pm on Sunday the 19th of December 1965, Ryan and Walker were in an unsupervised recreation yard. Using socks to help against the barbed wire on the wall, they were able to scale it and get over to the other side. Now, I don't know how well socks would do against barbed wire, but anyway, let's go on. Now, on the other side, they still have a 5 metre or 17 foot tall wall to get over. They'd made a grappling hook from scrap metal and this was, this was tied to bed sheets which had been made into ropes. They were able to hook onto pipes at the top of the wall and scale to the top. Along the top of the wall was a walkway that connected watchtowers from where the armed prison officers would patrol. Now as there was a Christmas party on at the time, this area was patrolled by only one guard, and he'd left his rifle leaning up against the wall in one of the watchtowers. A third accomplice on the ground created a diversion by yelling up at the guard. This diversion was just enough and at the right time for Ryan and Walker to jump over the fence and into the walkway at the top of the wall. By the time the guard saw Ryan and Walker approach him, he was unable to reach for his rifle, which Ryan now had pointed at him. Ryan yelled at the guard to open the gate at the bottom of the watchtower, which opened out onto the street. The guard pulled a lever and Ryan motioned the guard to go down the spiral staircase to ground level. As Ryan, Walker and the guard got to the bottom of the staircase, Ryan couldn't open the door as it was still locked. The guard had pulled the wrong lever, hoping to delay Ryan and Walker's escape, escape attempt. Now, that's a really brave thing to do when you've got a gun pointed at you. Ryan then threatened the guard and they ran back up the spiral staircase where at gunpoint the guard pulled the correct lever. Ryan and Walker, they then ran back down the stairs and out into the prison car park. The guard was now able to raise the alarm. There were only two cars in the car park and apparently one had a flat tyre but I don't think Ryan and Walker planned on stealing a car in the car park as they would have had to hotwire it to start it and they would have known that this would have eaten up precious escape time. As they ran out through the car park, they encountered the prison chaplain, Brigadier, Brigadier James Hewitt. At gunpoint, they demanded the keys to his car, but he told them he didn't drive that day. So Ryan bashed him across the head with the rifle and Hewitt fell to the ground with serious head injuries. Walker ran south and one of the guards on the wall yelled at him to stop or he would shoot. Walker ducked behind a small wall that bordered onto the church next to the prison. 
At this stage, the prison alarm was howling and unarmed guards came from everywhere. George Hodson, who'd been having lunch in the prison officer's lunchroom, ran out and the guard on the tower yelled out to him that he had Walker pinned down along the wall near the church. Hodson, unarmed, ran towards Walker and was able to grab him. Walker and Hodson struggled and eventually Walker was able to break free and run off towards Ryan. Hodson gave chase. So now there's a lot of people racing around. It's utter chaos as Ryan is now in the middle of the street, raising his rifle around and trying to flag down cars. Walker is running towards him with Hodson in chase. Ryan ends up forcing a car to stop by standing in front of it. It is driven by Frank Jazorski with his wife Pauline in the passenger seat. Frank, once he sees the rifle, is happy to go along with a frantic request from Ryan to get out of the car. However, his wife refuses. (laughs) I mean, what the fuck's going on here? Anyway, she refuses to, to get out of the car. Eventually, she does get out of the car, only to return to get her handbag. So at first she won't get out of the car, even when confronted by an armed crazy man. But when she does, she goes back to get a handbag. This certainly was a different time in Australia. Anyway, at this stage, one of the warders, William Mitchinson, grabs Ryan through the driver's side door and yells, The game's up. At the same time, warder Thomas Wallace grabs Pauline Jaroski and pulls her clear from the car. Ryan then breaks free and gets out the passenger side door of the car as he points the rifle at the advancing Hodson. Remember, Hodson was the one who was chasing Walker. Warder Robert Patterson, now armed with a rifle, runs out and behind Ryan. The next thing, boom. A shot is heard and George Hodson drops to the ground. A bullet had entered the right-hand side of his chest and exited out his back. Ryan and Walker then run off down the road and are able to carjack another driver and they escape. The thing is, who shot him? Was it Ryan or was it Robert Patterson, the prison warder? This is going to be a very controversial issue. So that was December 19, 1965. A huge manhunt is underway as Ryan and Walker go from safe house to safe house, desperate for money to be able to buy their way to Brazil. On the 23rd of December, they hold up the ANZ Bank in North Road, Ormond. During the robbery, they are said to have yelled out to the people inside the bank that this gun shot a man a few days ago. They made their getaway with £4,500, that's Australian pounds, and in today's money, all depending on how you calculate it, that's anywhere between $110,000 to $600,000. So they pretty much now had enough money to make the getaway. They were staying at a safe house in Ormond Road, Elwood, owned by Christine Aitken. 
with a huge bounty for their capture announced by the Victorian government of £6,000, which again, in today's term, was equivalent to $150,000 to $800,000. Again, that all depends on how you calculate it. You can imagine even the closest of friends could be swayed into giving you up. So it's Christmas Eve, and there's a party at the safe house. When they run out of booze, Christine Aitken's boyfriend, tow truck driver Arthur Henderson and Walker, go on a run to find some more booze from what they used to call a sly grog shop, or a place that's willing to sell alcohol on the sly or out of hours. After purchasing the booze, Walker and Henderson get into some sort of argument and Walker shoots and kills Henderson with a shot to the head in a toilet block at Middle Park. Now Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder Podcast would know better, but Middle Park is not a park, but a suburb suburb just north of the safe house in Elwood. Walker then returns to the party alone. Ryan and Walker then leave the party and go to a safe house in Kensington owned by Norman Murray. They give Murray money to buy a car for them. They want him to go to Sydney to buy the car and he does so returning with a car registered in Queensland. As you can imagine back then, having a car registered in another state would be a lot harder to track but then again it may be more noticeable. Anyway, Walker and Ryan drive to Sydney on the night of January the 1st, 1966, and arrive on the 2nd. I found a funny statement from Ross Nixon, former Deputy Police Commissioner of New South Wales. He said, We were very determined to catch Ryan and Walker and return them to Victoria and get them the hell out of New South Wales as we have enough trouble with our own criminals here without them coming from interstate. (laughs) Is that Aussie as or not? Anyway, they need safe houses and eventually Ryan tries to hook up with an ex-girlfriend. Not to stay in her safe house, rather so that he and Walker could party with them. So Ryan rocks up to her house, but she's not home. Her daughter is. Ryan makes an arrangement with the daughter for them to meet up near Concord Repatriation Hospital later that night. Little does Ryan know, but the daughter recognises Ryan from all the media that's been going on over the last few weeks and calls the police. It's January the 5th, 1966, the police set up an ambush. With 50 detectives in hiding around the hospital, they wait, and they wait, and they wait. It's nearly 20 minutes after the rendezvous time, and still, there's no sighting of Ryan and Walker. As police start to relax and get out of their hiding positions, All of a sudden, Ryan and Walker come screaming round the corner in their car. The cops all run and jump back into their positions. Ryan gets out of his car, can't see the girls, goes to a phone box, but the handset is cut. He then walks over to a shop and asks the owner if he could use the phone. Now, the owner of the shop is Tim Chinkata, 
and he is a dead set legend. He has volunteered to help the cops even though he knows that there's going to be an armed and dangerous prison escapee that will probably want to use his phone. Police told him not to tell anyone and he agreed. He said he won't even tell his wife as she might get a bit upset. A bit upset? Oh dear, again Aussie as. Anyway, Ryan is in the shop and he asks to make a phone call. Once he finishes, he pays Tom for the call and as he steps out of the shop, police grab him and take him into custody. Walker was also detained and they were extradited to Victoria. They've been on the run for 19 days. So, they end up going to trial. And I'll concentrate on Ronald Ryan's trial. Uh, Actually, Ryan and Walker were jointly tried for the murder of George Hodson. The more I researched this case, the more it seemed to unravel. At first, I'd only known that Ryan was the last man hanged, and I don't think I'm giving away the ending as the title suggests, someone gets hanged, and we have already gone over the last woman hanged, Jean Lee. What started to become apparent as I started researching was that Ryan wasn't some nasty, evil criminal and that he may not have actually fired the shot that killed George Hodson. At least, there is some reasonable doubt about it. So, let's get over to the trial. This is from trial transcript, uh, which is R versus Ryan and Walker, uh, R being Regina for the Queen. The Crown's case presented no scientific evidence. Ryan's rifle was never scientifically tested by ballistic forensic experts to prove it had fired a shot at all. The fatal bullet was never recovered, so no ballistic and no forensic evidence was possible to prove or disprove guilt beyond reasonable doubt. The spent bullet casing, allegedly fired by Ryan, was never recovered, so no ballistic and no forensic evidence was possible to prove Ryan had fired the fatal shot. So you would think that if one shot was made by Ryan when he was standing on the road, that the bullet casing would have had to be found. Not testing his rifle to see if it had been fired at all is also strange. As you could imagine, the rifle could have been cleaned several times previously and probably not fired. So if it had been fired in the previous 19 days that Ryan was on the run, you would think that there would be some type of residue. I don't know much about guns, but you'd think that if they did test it and it had been, they should be able to see if it's been fired. That just seems logical to me. Now when they did recover the rifle Ryan used, it still had seven of the eight rounds that were in it that day. So one round was missing. The Crown's case relied only on eyewitnesses who were near Pentridge Prison when Hodson was shot and killed because there was no scientific forensic evidence to prove Ryan fired a shot. The problem with the eyewitness accounts Most of them were conflicting or contradictive. Now, we all know this is always the problem with eyewitness accounts. 
Ask 10 people what they saw and you will get 10 different answers. 11 eyewitnesses testified that they saw Ryan waving and aiming his rifle. So far, so good. Everyone seems to agree that Ryan was standing there waving the rifle around. Problem is that some saw him squatting and some saw him standing. Only four eyewitnesses testified that they saw Ryan fire a shot. Two eyewitnesses testified that they saw smoke coming from Ryan's rifle. Two eyewitnesses testified that they saw Ryan recoil his rifle. Now, this M1 carbine being military issue used smokeless rounds and apparently was recoilless. Maybe one of the islanders know a little bit more about guns and about the M1 smokeless rounds and not recoiling. Okay, we will go up. Now, the, the officers that arrested Ryan gave evidence that Ryan confessed to firing the shot that killed George Hodson. And I'll say that only one shot was heard at the time, so whoever fired that shot killed George. So these officers were, they were accused of what's called verbaling. That's where unrecorded, unsigned testimony was given by the officers at trial. Detective Sergeant KP Bill Walters, he told the court that on the 6th of January 1966, the day after Ryan's recapture in Sydney, Ryan said, In the heat of the moment, you sometimes do an act without thinking. I think this is what happened with Hodson. He had no need to interfere. He was stupid. He was told to keep away. He grabbed Pete, that's Peter Walker, and hit him with an iron bar. He caused his own death. I didn't want to shoot him. I could have shot a lot more. Detective Senior Constable Harry Morrison told the court that on the 7th of January 1966, during the flight returning Ryan back to Melbourne, Ryan said, The water spoilt the whole show. If he had not poked his great head into it, he would not have got shot. It was either him or Pete. None of the verbal confessions were signed by Ryan, who only signed documents saying that he would give no verbal testimony. Now, back in the old days, people were more trusting of police, so verbaling a suspect was a lot easier to get away with. Nowadays, investigators have to record every statement made by suspects. So, looking at the evidence given by the Crown, you can see that all aspects of it is looking dodgy. The defence argued that from the angle that the bullet passed through Hodson's body, that the shot was fired from an elevated position and that Ryan could not have fired that shot and more likely it came from one of the guard towers. I will list a few reasons why Ronald Ryan could have been innocent of murder. Ryan's rifle was never scientifically tested by forensic experts. There was no proof that Ryan's rifle had been fired. The fatal bullet that passed through Hodson's body was never recovered despite extensive searching by police. The spent cartridge 
also was never found, despite extensive search by police. If Ryan had fired a shot, a spent cartridge would have spilt onto the ground. It was never proven that the fatal bullet came from the weapon in Ryan's possession. All 14 witnesses testified they heard only one shot. Patterson admitted and testified he fired one single shot. No person heard two shots fired. If Ryan had also fired a shot, at least one person would have heard two shots. Only one shot was heard. Ballistic evidence indicated that Hodson was shot in a downward trajectory angle. The measure of the entry and exit wound on Hodson's body indicated that the shot was fired from an elevated position. Ryan, a short man, could not have fired at Hodson, who was a taller guy, in such a downward trajectory angle as both were on level ground. Two eyewitnesses testified seeing Ryan recoil his rifle and two eyewitnesses testified seeing smoke coming from the barrel of Ryan's rifle. In fact, at trial, a ballistic expert on firearms testified that type of rifle had no recoil and it contained smokeless cartridges. In regards to the trajectory theory put forward by the defence, the trial judge dismissed the theory as did the judges at the appeal two months later. They said there was enough evidence to say Hodson was not standing fully erect, but was running in a forward-leaning position when he was shot. No witnesses say he was leaning forward when he was running towards Ryan. Now we'll talk a bit about Patterson, who may or may not have fired that shot. Anyway, Patterson had made several contradictory statements to police about what he saw, heard and did on that day. First he told police, I did not hear a shot fired other than the one I fired. He then changed that to, just as I turned into the entrance to the garden, I heard a shot. And finally, he changed it to, I ran back inside and asked for a gun. I went to the main gate and I received a gun and ran back outside. As I was running to the lawn, I heard the crack of a shot. Patterson uh, changed his story too about who was in the line of fire when he aimed his rifle. First he said, I sighted my rifle at Ryan and was about to fire when a woman walked into the line of fire and I lifted my rifle. That changed too. I took aim at Ryan, but two prison officers were in the line of fire, so I dropped my rifle again. And finally, it changed to, I took aim at Ryan, and I found out I had to fire between two prison officers to get Ryan, so I lowered my gun again. So Patterson's changed two statements three times. To me, and I'm sure to a lot of others, especially Ryan's defence, this looks like a cover-up. He made the initial statements which didn't suit the narrative they wanted, so it was changed and changed again. Which statement would you likely to believe more than the others? Anyway, Ryan kept the rifle he'd taken from the guard tower and testified that the reason he kept it was to prove that he did not fire the shot that killed Hodson. 
However, this rifle was never put under proper forensic examination. In fact, it was left in a car boot for a time and not stored properly. Now, if he had fired the rifle and he was captured with it, a forensic examination could easily prove you fired the shot. So you would dispose of it as soon as you could, wouldn't you? You'd just throw it away. So the fact that Ryan kept the rifle as evidence that he did not fire a shot is extremely credible. Ryan and Walker have been able to collect several other weapons on the run, so they really didn't need this rifle. Ryan testified, I did not discharge the gun. I've never fired that gun. At no time did I fire a shot. My freedom was the only objective. The rifle was taken in the first instance, so it could not be used against me. Now, as his rifle had seven rounds left in it, what seems to have happened is that this type of rifle, if cocked with the safety catch on, will jam and clearing the jam ejects a live round. This is what may have happened when Ryan first grabbed the gun, as he was inexperienced with this type of rifle. However, the live round was never produced in court. I found a a report that Officer Lang, now he was the guy on the tower and confronted by Ryan and Walker. He initially stated that Ryan grabbed his gun and cocked the lever and the live round ejected. He later gave a statement and attached the live round. He was then brought in to change his statement and the live round disappeared. So in the end, Prison Officer Lang testified that he did not find a live round on the floor of the watchtower. Two years later, in early 1969, the authorities informed Lang that he had been awarded a commendation for a bravery award for his actions during the prison escape. Lang was asked to attend Government House to receive the bravery award, but Lang refused to attend. He did not want to accept the bravery award. So, with no forensic evidence, no signed testimony by Ryan, and only police verbal evidence, the jury would have to come to a verdict. There was fierce and loud arguing heard from the jury room. Apparently, they were there for seven and a half hours. It is said that originally ten jury members had thought Ryan guilty, and they were able to convince the other two to give a guilty verdict. Apparently, there was no discussion about the death penalty being applied. Now, maybe the jury were tired, but it had been publicly stated that the death penalty would apply in this case, even though it was usually commuted to life imprisonment. Now, there are a lot of conflicting versions of what happened in the jury room. Others said the death penalty was mentioned in the jury room, but the jury assumed there'd be no death penalty applied in this case. So, in the end, Ryan was found guilty of the murder of George Henry Hodson. Justice Stark wasted no time in passing the sentence of death. Justice Stark 
asked Ryan if he had anything to start anything to say. Ryan stated, I still maintain my innocence. I will consult with my counsel with a view to appeal. That is all I have to say. Without further delay, without the right of plea by the defence, and without the usual adjournment prior to sentencing, Justice Stark wasted no time in sentencing Ryan to death. Stark said, Ronald Joseph Ryan, you have been found guilty of murder of George Henry Hodson. It is the sentence of this court that you be taken from here to the place from where you came, that's Pentridge Prison, and on a day and an hour to be fixed, you shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may God have mercy on your soul. Walker will be found guilty of manslaughter and again found guilty of manslaughter of Arthur Henderson while on the run. He would get 12 years. Funny that, he was the only one that actually 100% killed someone, but he didn't get the death penalty. Since the hanging of Jean Lee, Norman Andrews and Robert Clayton, 35 murder convictions that had the death penalty had the sentences commuted to life imprisonment. The jury held the view that if they found Ryan guilty of murder, that the same would happen to this sentence. In fact, months after the verdict, many of the jury members would support petitions for Ryan not to hang. Ryan's barrister, Dr. Philip Opus QC, convinced of Ryan's innocence decided to appeal against the murder conviction. The first appeal was to the Victorian Court of Criminal Appeal, a bench consisting of three judges of the Supreme Court. His ground was that the verdict was against the weight of evidence. He argued that as a matter of law, that the inherent inconsistencies and improbabilities and even impossibilities in the evidence. The appeal was dismissed on June 8, 1966. In October 1966, a second appeal is rejected. Two months later, after a state government cabinet meeting, Premier Bolt announces that Ryan's death sentence will not be commuted. Opus decided to appeal to the Privy Council in London, but the government withdrew all his funding. He decided, however, that he would go ahead and work for free. Despite this, all appeals were unsuccessful and Ryan ultimately was to hang at 8am the 3rd of February 1967, aged 41 years. An estimated 18,000 people participated in street protests and around 15,000 signed a petition against the hanging. However, the Bolt government was determined to carry out the execution. On the night of February 2nd, 1967, a large crowd of around 3,000 gathered at Pentridge Prison hours before Ryan was to be executed. Several last-minute attempts for clemency were refused. Even Alan John Kane, 
who was a former Pentridge prisoner, who along with seven other inmates witnessed a prison warder fire a shot from number one guard tower. He signed an affidavit and had been interviewed by police, but was never called as a witness. Now, I don't know why he didn't come forward sooner, but even this fresh evidence was not enough to get a stay of execution. I bet you the defence would have loved to have his statement at the trial. Anyway, so Ryan, he's transferred to a cell next to the gallows. As the gallows had not been used for such a long time, they had to check it, oil it, and make sure it was in working order. For most of the time, Father Brosnan, the prison chaplain, was with Ryan. While on death row, he had converted back to Catholicism. At the 11th hour, Ryan wrote his last letters to his family members, to his defence counsel, to the anti-hanging committee, and to Father Brosnan. The letters were handwritten on toilet paper inside his cell and neatly folded. Dorothy, his wife, was permitted to see Ryan for a short time during the night. She'd left the kids at home. As the dusk on the morning of February the 3rd approached, hot winds started to blow. Still, the crowd of 3,000 people kept their vigil outside the prison gates. At 7.58am, the Supreme Court Sheriff and the prison governor walked into the death cell opposite the trap, followed by the hangman wearing a boiler suit, welder's goggles and a green cap to disguise his identity. Ryan said to the prison governor, You look pale, Gov. To which he replied, I'll be alright. Ryan wore a grey open-necked shirt and blue-grey denim trousers. His hands were cuffed, his arms bound, and a hood of unbleached calico placed on his head just above his eyes. He was not given a sedative. Rather, he had a nip of whiskey. Ryan was calm and resigned to his fate. As he walked up to the gallows, he said to the executioner, God bless you. Whatever you do, do it quickly. The executioner placed the noose around Ryan's neck with a knot under the left side of his chin. At the same moment, trams and trains stopped all over Melbourne. Workers on building sites downed tools for two minutes in protest and people stopped and stood silently in the street. As soon as he tightened the knot, The executioner lunged at the lever and with a crack, Ryan's body fell through the trapdoor. Outside, the protesters stood in silence as a flock of birds flew away from the sound of the gallows. The prison doctor then examined Ryan and found he still had a heartbeat. For four minutes, his heart kept beating. Finally, at 8.04, Ryan was declared dead the last to hang in Australia. Ryan stated his innocence right up to the end. He was buried in unconsecrated ground in the prison. Shortly after the hanging, both prison officer Lang, the one who was on top of the walkway 
and whose rifle was taken by Ryan and prison, uh, prison officer Patterson, who was thought to have fired the only shot that morning, both would commit suicide. Some say over the execution of Ryan. So, Islanders, that was the last legal execution in Australia. But the case didn't die with Ryan. Ever since that hot, windy and dusty morning in February 1967, the case for Ryan's innocence has been hotly debated. It's not disputed that in the act of escaping from jail that a man, George Hodson, was killed. What is in dispute was who fired the shot. As we said before, there was no forensic evidence. The police used unsigned verbal confessions. Witness accounts were so conflicting as to be almost useless. Given this, there should have been a high level of reasonable doubt for a murder conviction. At least enough to provide for the sentence to be commuted to life imprisonment or to have a manslaughter conviction. Now, if I will refer to my poll I had on my Facebook page. I don't think anyone, even the pro-death penalty supporters, would want someone to go to the gallows unless they were 100% guilty of the offence. Still, Ronald Ryan, whether or not he fired that shot, wasn't committing a heinous crime against a child or torturing people to death. The guy looked after his frail old mother until she died and he had a wife and three kids he loved. Yes, he was a bit of a scumbag, but did he deserve to die? There is one story about how he was trying to blow open a safe during one of his robberies and the explosives didn't go off. So instead of just running away, He left a note for the staff when they turned up to work the next day, explaining to them that it was not safe to be there and to call police so they could get explosive experts in to make the place safe. This isn't something a cold-hearted criminal would do. So when we look at the last woman to hang and the last man, there was a lot of government pressure to make sure they did not get their sentences commuted to life. In Jean Lee's case, it's pretty obvious that they did not go into the robbery with an intent to kill, and surely she did not do the killing. But the government of the day wanted to make an example of her to other women that tried to venture out of the kitchen and become independent. After all the hard work women had done during the Second World War, taking over traditional male roles and showing that they were, they were also just as capable as men. Also with Ryan, the Bolt government was not going to back down on this one. Even when there was so much reasonable doubt that anyone could see in this trial. From recapture to death, was around a year, so it was never a chance for an inquiry or fresh evidence to surface. All I can say is that both these executions were dodgy and both should never have been carried out. The executions were taken out in the name of the people, even though there was a huge proportion of the people 
against the death penalty in Australia at the time. Now, I've only been able to give you a brief look into these cases, but I reckon if you're interested, then Google the subject and get a little more in-depth detail into what went on. It will make you rage. Especially, have a look at Ryan's case. So, that was a long episode this week. As a bonus, I will read out The Innocence of Ronald Ryan by Dr. Philip Opus QC. That was Ryan's barrister. Now, I'll read it out in its entirety as part three. So that's about all for this week's episode. Now, I'll just go into a little bit of housekeeping and Patreon shout-outs. Thanks to Julie B, Lisa R, and The Mall Podcast. That's a new one from Australia, and you should check it out. Of course, thanks to all existing patrons, the goal of a replacement PC is getting closer. To become a patron of the island, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland, and for as little as a dollar a month, you get commercial-free weekly episodes. All money goes back into the show to keep the island afloat. If you just want to donate on a one-off basis, then you can PayPal to the island at cambo at truecrimeisland.com. But everyone gets commercial-free episodes every week regardless. You can show your support by just sharing or reviewing the island at the usual places. It does all help. The website's truecrimeisland.com and you can download or stream the episodes from there. There's also a button to get merch such as t-shirts, hoodies and mugs to show your support for the island and to look cool at the same time. Now, I did have an issue with one of my t-shirts I got from Threadless, but I emailed them a photo and they will replace it. So if you've bought merchandise and you aren't happy, please let them know so they can help you out. And also, I would like to know as well. Koozies or beer coolers and stickers can be purchased as well. Just email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Of course, don't forget to find the island on Facebook. Just do a search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. You can friend me on Facebook as well. You'll search for Cambo Ford. I do have a promo this week for a new podcast called Hidden Staircase. So look out for that. One last thing, Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder Podcast and Broderick from Felon, we are getting together for a chat on December the 16th in Melbourne. There will be true crime sisters there as well, Bill and Harry. Now, you're welcome to come along. Just let Tara or myself know if you do, just in case we get too many people. I don't know. It was just going to be ourselves, but we decided to invite the listeners along as well. We may have more people there as well, but I can't tell you that. I have no idea yet, but more details as they come to hand, and they'll be on our respective Facebook and Twitter feeds. So that's December the 16th in Melbourne, somewhere. So that's all, folks. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.
are your inner detective with every episode of the Hidden Staircase podcast, where I, Sammy, deliver stories and true cases of mystery and murder. You can join us at the Hidden Staircase discussion group on Facebook, or you can like us on Twitter at the Hidden, and we'll talk about everything mystery and murder. You can also go to accproductions.org slash hidden staircase to learn more about the podcast and the episodes we've discussed. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. Thank you.